to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is uh, where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. I'm going to read the first five verses of this passage from Acts 16, 1 through 5, and then uh, we're going to look at it as uh, we continue this morning. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Um, let's read God's word. Follow along as I read. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Several years ago, on a television show that's produced by the Canadian broadcasting company called Quirks and Quirks, they had an interview with a woman whose name is Kathleen Vermka. Kathleen Vermka is a specialist in how child, children learn to speak. And she and her team were very excited because they had just finished a multi-year-long study of listening to the sounds of babies crying in hospital nurseries. <laughs> that must have been funded by the government. Um, she did it in uh, uh, France and in Germany. They were doing this uh, evaluation. They recorded all the babies crying, and then they digitally categorized them, analyzed every sound, the pitch, the cadence, and then they compared the sounds. And what they discovered is that babies cry with an accent. In France, the babies, uh, when they cried, they inflect from low to high. I won't do it. They inflect from low to high. But in German nurseries, they, uh, babies inflect from high to low. And these researchers concluded that because that's the way French often works from low to high and German often works from high to low, they concluded that these babies had been in their mother's wombs listening to the sound of their mother speaking for nine months and then were born with that same inflection even in how they started crying in the nursery. Now what's surprising about that study is not the influence that parents have on their children. And it's not surprising to us that it happens in unconscious ways. You might be surprised though by that study. I was to, to think again about how early this influence begins and how deeply that influence penetrates. Uh, it's this sort of influence actually that Paul sought to exploit when it came time to encourage one of his protégés, a man by the name of Timothy. It's actually also along those lines that I want to encourage you today. I want to think with you not merely about the tone of language that you're sharing with those under your influence. I want to talk to you about the tone of life that you leave with them. Uh, this passage that we have open before us that we just read here is, uh, tells us when Timothy first joined Paul's ministry team. This is a friendship that lasted about 20 years until Paul uh, was martyred. And Timothy, it seems like Timothy was, if not the most, at least one of the most important human relationships that the Apostle Paul had in the New Testament. Uh, there begins also here in this passage, uh, some people describe it as a bridge passage in Acts 
the bridge between the end of Paul's first missionary journey and the beginning of his second missionary journey. Um, That is, Paul has already made one trip around the Mediterranean up into the Galatian area, and now he's going back again. And one of the first things that he does is he puts together a team to go with him. This is a bridge passage, but it also seems to be somewhat of a pattern passage, I think. Most of us have, have here in this room, at some point in time, picked out a wall color paint. Have you done that? When's the last time you picked out a wall color? Well, um, you, you go to the store, and you, you stand in front of this rack where there's 500 colors of paint, and you're supposed to, from those 500 colors, find from this little piece a color that's going to look brilliant when you put it all over all of your walls surrounding you completely. Um, Well, uh, this passage of Scripture is a bridge between the first and second missionary journeys. It's also like one of those color samples because what happens in these five verses is going to be painted all over the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. So uh, that's kind of the idea with which I'd like to look at this passage this morning, this, this, these color samples, this theme that shows up here and again even in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, this morning I want to point out four of those patterns that are here in this passage. And frankly, we've seen them before in the book of Acts, some of them, and we're going to see them again in the book of Acts as we continue walking through it. They're that important that Luke records it many times. If it's that important... Let's heed what it says. So let's look at here at these four patterns in this passage. And the first one is ministry partnerships. Ministry partnerships. Verse 3 tells us that as uh, Paul got more acquainted with Timothy, he wanted to take him along. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. Now why? As I said a minute ago, Paul's building the team. Remember, in the first missionary journey, it had been Paul and Barnabas and Mark. Now here on the second missionary journey, it's Paul, and he's picked up Silas. And now it appears he wants to join, have Timothy join the team too. A couple of years ago, um, I had a chance to teach a Sunday school class for adults in our, in our uh, church and, uh, about the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that I really appreciated learning about Paul is how many people Paul partnered with in his ministry. At some point, if you read the book of Acts and the epistles, Paul's letters, and you compile, there are 100 named people in those letters that Paul partnered with. And if you eliminate just the people that he names, just the names, but count only the people that he says something more detailed about, that's 36. There's still 36 significant men and women. Sometimes when we read uh, the book of Acts, because Paul is the hero, the narrative hero of this story, we tend to think of him as this lone ranger type minister that he's braving all by himself against the forces of darkness and there he goes. But that's actually not true. Um, G.K. Chesterton was thinking about this, this image that we often have of the lone hero or the lone leader. Chesterton said this, I've searched all the parks in all the cities and found no statues of committees. Now, that may be true, uh, but that's not actually what God intended. In fact, the one time that we know that the Apostle Paul was alone, it's in 2 Timothy 4, and he says to Timothy, please come with me. Bring Mark. Come with me yourself. I want to be with you because Paul valued ministry partnerships. And actually, I think 
we have the development of, of Paul's own ministry model here. Later in 2 Timothy 2, he wrote to Timothy and he said, The things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me. Jackie read that line from 2 Timothy. Join with me, Paul says. This is ministry partnerships. I think this pattern that we hear, see in this passage should encourage us to ask a couple questions about any sort of ministry that you're involved in in grace. If you're doing anything as a, a servant in our church, you should ask these two questions. The first one is, can I do this ministry with someone else? Can I do this ministry with someone else? <laughs> now, by that, I don't mean that you're working with Sandy and you'd rather be working with Donna. Okay, that's not what I mean. But um, if, if there's this ministry that I'm doing alone, is there a ministry that I could do it? Somebody can, can somebody partner with me? Can somebody teach with me? Can somebody um, train with me? Can somebody cook with me? Can somebody plan with me? Can somebody visit with me? Is there, uh, what sort of partnerships can I form in this work? And the second question you should ask yourself is, who's going to replace me in this ministry? Who will replace me in this ministry? That is, who's next? I'm not trying to get you to quit the job that you have. But I want to suggest to you that it's inevitable that you will not be able to do it forever. So if you're a ministry leader, who's going to take that role next? Who's going to have that position next? You'll remember a few months ago, the elders advertised in the bulletin, and we used uh, through email a little bit, we were looking for young men who were interested in being an elder someday. And we have three men who attend our elders meetings at the beginning. They're there for a little bit. They join us in, in some of our discussion and some of our prayer time. This is one of the ways that the elders are thinking about ministry partnerships. Who's next? Now, second here, notice this again, this theme in the book of Acts qualified leadership qualified leadership well we've seen this before haven't we in Acts 6 and and in other places um and the qualified leader in this case is timothy let's think about his biography a little bit let's let's meet this young man here in the text timothy uh, the bible tells us two facts about timothy that we and we wish we knew more it says here in the text that timothy's mother was jewish and she was a believer but his father was Greek. Now, there's all kinds of ideas about this. What does this mean? Some people speculate that maybe Timothy, his, his mother, came from a family that was not very devout, that didn't really take their Judaism seriously because they, she married somebody who was outside of the faith, who was a Greek and not a Jew. And, you know, the Old Testament is very, has some very specific rules about that, and she flaunted them some people also think that maybe they weren't very devout because her name was eunice and eunice is a greek name and it seems odd that a faithful jew would name his uh, daughter after a, a, a greek name the problem with that idea though is that later and we're going to look at this um she was very faithful in teaching timothy the bible which is a pretty good indication of her devoutness which is not a word devotion that's the word uh, so there's that. And then there's all kinds of speculation about, uh, about his father. Where was his father? Many people think that his father is dead because he's not mentioned here at all in, in doing anything or ever praised or ever spoken about except here. 
Some people wonder if maybe his father was a Greek man who attended synagogue as a God-fearer but hadn't converted to Judaism. Uh, we've seen men and women like that in the, old te- uh, in the book of Acts before. But the prob- uh, Well, that's somewhat attractive because the rest of the Jews in the area seem to know an awful lot about Timothy's business, which would have been likely if they knew his father, right? So maybe... I don't know. It, it doesn't seem, if, if he was a God-fearer, he at least had not become a Christian, it seems, like Timothy's mother had and like Timothy had, probably on one of Paul's first uh, journeys through this town of Lystra. Oh, I wish we knew more about this man. One of the things that we do know, verse 2 says that the believers in Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. He was qualified for the work that Paul wanted to take him on. He had a good reputation among the believers. And we see here a reminder, I think, of the role that the church plays in commending people for ministry. It occurred to me when I was looking at verse 2 that I do this work all the time. It's frightening a little bit. Um, I often have the opportunity to fill out pastoral reference forms i fill them out for missions agencies i fill them out for schools and colleges in my official capacity i write my name and i i I break out the full title lead pastor grace baptist church of millersville the whole thing i'm speaking on behalf of the church and i'm commending these men and women for this next step that they're taking i i'm doing in part what verse 2 says There's a role for the church to play. Um, I wrote down on the bottom of your note sheet there, 1 Timothy 4.14. Did you notice what it says? uh, Paul later is writing to Timothy. He says, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. When did that happen? I think it was probably here at this point in time when Timothy starting his ministry with Paul, the elders got together, they prayed for him, and they sent him off. And the church was involved in this. If you are part of our congregation, if you have some years on you, if you have a working knowledge of the Bible, if you have acquaintanceship with uh, the men and women who are part of our church, you should be keeping your eyes open. You should be thinking about this. Who in our congregation are we going to send next? Who's going to go next? Um, This is one of the the responsibilities that the elders have. Who can we send next out of our church into pastoral ministry, into overseas missions? Who's going next? We're sending a lot of people. Keith and Vicki are leaving on Tuesday to go to Uganda. Who's next? One of the responsibilities, again, if if you've got some years on you, you have a working acquaintance with this book if you know people in our church you should be thinking about this who's next church has a role now the church has a role that's true but i want to turn if you would please turn with me from Acts 16 for just a couple minutes to the book of second timothy and i want to talk about timothy's home timothy's home and the role that it played too in qualifying him for ministry here we're going to see some advantages that Timothy had that you may not have, uh, but that um, you can seek to instill in those under your care. So why don't you turn with me a few books over to Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 1. 
and I want to read verse 5. 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. Uh, the scripture says this, I am reminded, Paul writes to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. We're going to talk about that verse for just a minute, but while we're here, look at verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. It would seem like Paul laid his hands on Timothy and the elders, probably at the same time, and that was when Timothy was in particular appointed for ministry. Let's spend a few minutes with Timothy's mother, shall we? It's, it's Mother's Day, right? And, and look here what the text says. The sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother and now lives in you. Um, Timothy learned, if, if, the, if the research is true, Timothy not only got his accent from his mother, but Timothy also learned this faith from his mother and from his grandmother. Now, how did Timothy's mother and grandmother communicate this faith to him? I think the answer is over in 2 Timothy 3, 15. Actually, 14. 2 Timothy 3.14. So turn over a couple pages. Look what it says. 2 Timothy 3.14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were here on Wednesday night for the Awana closing program, I I talked about this verse for just a a couple of minutes with the clubbers. Notice here what it says about Timothy's mother's teaching. When did she start? She started early. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. And Paul expected that early training to make a difference. He expected that it would matter to him, that it would be important to him that from the time, probably before she knew that Timothy was absorbing it, probably before she got any confirmation from him that Timothy was understanding, she was teaching him the scriptures. Don't underestimate the value of those words that you say to your children early in their lives in your house. Don't underestimate the value of exalting Christ in front of the twos and threes Sunday school class. (laughs) What a tough crowd. Don't uh, don't underestimate the importance, Paul points this out here, of, of pouring love for Christ's sake on those babies that are in the nursery. How from infancy you have known the scriptures. Make sure at your house from a very early age you have Bible story books within easy reach of your reading chair. Or that you can tell these stories from your own memory very early on. I wonder if, there, if you have a collection of the, of the one or two that you tell really well. <laughs> your children will like to hear them over and over again. I once made the mistake of telling my children about how when I was a little child, the pajama factory down the street caught on fire during the dead of winter. And they asked me to tell that story over and over and over. You'll hear it again. I'm desperate for sermon illustrations. You'll hear it sometime. So, uh, but I wonder... I wonder, do you, have, do you have a particular Bible story that you are good at telling and that they like to hear you tell? 
This is not just his mother, but his grandmother did this too, uh, apparently. Dad is missing, uh, but look at what his mother and his grandmother did for him. Verse 15 is fascinating to me. I think it says, The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's stunning to me. The reason it's stunning to me is because Paul's talking about the Old Testament. He's not talking about the Gospels. He's talking about the Old Testament. And they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you're reading the Old Testament like Paul expected you to read the Old Testament, they make you wise. They clearly point you forward toward faith in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's the goal of this book to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the most important thing that we ever talk about as a congregation is making you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul said all of the scriptures point toward this. This has been part of God's plan from the beginning that you knowing the scriptures would be pointed toward salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I know most of you who are gathered here today, I recognize you, I see you every week. Um, But if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know our church is very happy that you're here. You can come any time that you want. And I also want to tell you, though, that the most important thing that we want you to know is we want you to be wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul said the scriptures point us in that direction. They all point in that direction. Can I, I actually want to take a few minutes and, and tell you one story about how the Bible does that. Um, it's a story that Ben Franklin said was one of the most charming novellas that he ever read. Maybe it's a story that some of you know. It's a story in the Old Testament. It's a story about a woman who's named Naomi. Now, Naomi's story is told in a book that's actually named after her (laughs) daughter-in-law, which, depending on the relationship they had as mother and daughter-in-law, might lead to some tension if the book about you is named after your daughter-in-law, but we'll let that pass. So, Naomi... Naomi lived a long time ago, uh, 1,200 years before Jesus was born. And Naomi lived in a town that you recognize the name of. It's the town of Bethlehem. Yes, that town of Bethlehem. And Naomi had a husband, and Naomi had two sons. It was a happy home until a famine struck the area. It's ironic. Bethlehem means house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. So Naomi's husband led her and her sons, and they left Bethlehem, and they went to the neighboring uh, nation. It was called Moab. And there um, um, they, the boys grew up, and they eventually married two women that were from Moab. Not a great idea. Then what happens is actually God seems to indicate his opinion of the value that he holds Naomi's husband and Naomi's sons in, and that they, both, they all die. There's Naomi. She's very far from her home. And in this culture uh, that she lived in, of course, she had no means of support at all because that's what her husband was for and nobody to protect her either. That's what her sons were for. She is far from home, lost, without support, without defense. In every way, her life seems to have come to a significant end. And she's got these two daughters-in-law to take care of. So she says to them, go home, go back to your fathers, uh, 
house and um, I'll, I'll manage. Well, one of them does, and one of them, Ruth, says, no, I, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going I'm to stay with you, and I'm going to trust in your God. So Naomi and her, her uh, daughter-in-law, Ruth, they go back to Bethlehem, and they walk into town, and everybody says, "Woohoo! it's Naomi, she's back. And Naomi is a name, of course, that means happy, joyful, pleasant. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Well, in the providence of God, God brings into their lives a man whose name is Boaz. If you're expecting and you're looking for a good name for your son, Boaz would be an awesome name to give your son. Because Boaz shows up in the scriptures as the man's man. He's the hero. And he comes in and he finds Ruth to be a delightful young woman and he marries her. Oh, happy day. He marries uh, Ruth and then uh, she gives birth to a son. And there's this very odd portion at the end of the story of uh, Naomi where they take that baby and they put the baby in Naomi's hands and they say, Naomi has a son. Naomi has a son. And I'm a, a 21st century reader of the text and I say, no, she doesn't. This is not Naomi's child. It's not Naomi's child. She's not even she's not even related to this child, is she? Because she's the child of the daughter-in-law, and then, well, Boaz was a distant relative, but no. Except for the fact, except for the fact that this is the child that God is going to use to protect and provide for and care for Naomi in her old age. Now, that's the story. That's supposed to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How? Well, because the Bible tells us that we are very much like Naomi, not in a a physical sense, not in our location, not in our age, our our time, obviously, but, but in a spiritual sense, because the Bible tells us that we are born alienated and very far away from God. The Bible tells us that in a spiritual sense, we're without resources, we're without defense, we're without provision. You know, do you know why people look for life and all of those things that the children's choir is saying about why they, they want uh, their beauty or their fame or their youth or their money or uh, uh, their skills to, or their work to make a difference in their lives? Because they're looking for something to feed their lives, looking for something to be to satisfy them. That's why people get trapped in addictions to drugs or sex and porn and food and they're just looking for something to to feed the furnace of their cold hearts like Naomi far from God without resources without defense and that story makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus because uh, it points us forward to uh, isn't this beautiful the the great 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 grandson of that baby that Naomi was holding that day, was also born in Bethlehem, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God sent him to be our rescuer, to provide for us. He did, he came and he lived this perfect life 
his perfect life in perfect obedience to his father. He died on the cross for us. See, our problem is not that just that we have no resources and no defense. Our problem is that we're rebellious against this God. Walking in disobedience to him, there's a penalty for that. Jesus bore it for us on the cross. He died and he rose again. And all who turn to him, all who trust in him, all who are have faith in him, wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all who turn to him will find forgiveness and life in his name. And you will be as satisfied as an old woman holding that newborn baby who will grow to be your protector and provider. You see how the Bible... I wonder how many times Eunice and Lois told that story to Timothy. How often they rehearsed those facts and how, how they must have rejoiced when Paul came and said, I've got a story to tell you about another baby born in Bethlehem. The Bible's a rescue story. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, my invitation to you is to turn to Christ and find forgiveness and life in him. Now, notice here in this text in 2 Timothy 3, Paul's logic. In verse 14, he said, Timothy, continue in what you've learned because you know those from whom you've learned it. What's the connection between who taught it to him and what it was or his, his, the content and the teacher? What's the connection? I think it's because it's his mother and his grandmother. He knows that they love him. They did this as an act of love. It's the affection and the content that go together. And, and they make it for Timothy worth remembering. It's an act of love. Can I remind you, this is one of the ways you show your children that you love them by continuing in this, by continuing to teach them the scriptures which are able to make them wise for salvation. Can I encourage you this morning to take up this task with renewed vigor? You know, your schedules change. There's, there's schedules in your life when it's much easier to do this work uh, as, as they grow. I'm, I'm on the cusp. I'm not there quite yet, but I'm on the cusp of those years where I will say to my children, turn off the lights when you go to bed. I'm going to sleep now. Well, for years we read the Bible at night before they go to bed. What are we going to do if I'm going to sleep first? They can come into my room, read me a Bible story, and tuck me in. I don't think they're going to go for that. So, schedules change patterns change it's always but can i can i just encourage you to commit yourself to this again to renew your engagement in this mother grandmother take this up this is an act of love towards those that god has entrusted into your care now here pattern number three or um, paint sample number three in this passage so we've talked about ministry partnerships. We've talked about uh, qualified leadership, which Timothy got in his church and his home. And then third here, gospel sacrifice, gospel sacrifice. Verse 3, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, I don't know how we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because we've been talking about this issue over the last several weeks. Uh, some people actually think that 
what happened here is a great travesty and that Paul shouldn't have done this. And this is a terrible mistake that Paul made. Why? Because, remember, the church has just gone through this major disagreement, this major hurdle that they had over the role that circumcision plays in the gospel. Circumcision and then obeying all the old covenant laws that go along with it. And the question is, do you need to be circumcised in order to be a Christian? And Paul argued vociferously, and the church agreed with him, Um, Well, they were all in agreement. They just codified it. They said, no, you don't have to be circumcised. There is salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, not salvation through faith plus being circumcised and obeying the Old Testament law in Christ Jesus. So why then, if Paul had so carefully argued for that, why did he circumcise Timothy? And I think the text tells us he did it because of the Jews who lived in that area. Not the Jewish believers, not the Jewish brothers and sisters, but the Jews who are not yet converted. See, Paul and Timothy are thinking about the mission, and they don't want the argument to be about Timothy. They want the argument to be about the gospel. And Timothy, as an uncircumcised Jew or half-Jewish, an uncircumcised, would be viewed as being an apostate, someone who's unfaithful to the law. So picture this. Paul and Timothy and Silas walk into a synagogue and they say, Paul says, I am here to come and tell you about the one who came to fulfill the law perfectly. The one who is the new Moses and the new David and who who obeyed God's law perfectly for us. And then someone in the crowd says, oh, really? You want to talk to us about fulfilling the law? What about that young guy that you have with you who is an apostate Jew? You want to talk to us about fulfilling the law? Why don't you get your ministry partner to to, uh, uh, fulfill the law here? So to avoid that situation, so that doesn't happen, um, Paul encourages Timothy, like he tells us to do in Romans 14 and 15 and and, and elsewhere. Um, he, He asks Timothy for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel to be circumcised. I wonder how that conversation went. This is the day before anesthetics. Timothy was very committed to this ministry. Now, I wonder how committed you are to this ministry, this gospel work. What would you be willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? You know, we don't live in a culture like this, but um, if you're going to someday live and serve in a Muslim country, we need to send people to Afghanistan and Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. If you go there... um, you want to give up bacon right? Um, and alcohol. Maybe your right to wear shorts and T-shirts. Or if you're in Germany, some forms of makeup. One of our outreach partners several years ago uh, said to us that, that there's particular types of makeup in Germany that if you wear them, it's a sign that you're an immoral person. You actually may feel the press of this, this gospel sacrifice more within the confines of the church than outside of the church. A long time ago, my uh, home church was looking for a new senior high Sunday school past, uh, teacher. So they were looking for this uh, volunteer to teach the senior high Sunday school class. There was a man in church they thought would be qualified to do it. His name was Spencer. The problem was Spencer had an earring. This is my fundamental Baptist church 20 years ago. We can fight about earrings later, but just follow me here. So they were a little bit oh, concerned about this. Uh, I didn't think that this was going to fly to have this Sunday school teacher, this pierced Sunday school teacher. So um, with great fear and trepidation, someone went up to Spencer and said, 
Spencer, we want you to teach the senior high Sunday school class, but we're wondering about what some of the parents might say because of your earring. And Spencer looked at him and said, oh, well, I'll just take it out then. <laughs> he could have insisted on his right to wear it. He could have said, don't you know there's nothing in the Bible about me wearing an earring and I have the right as a follower of Jesus to do this and I can do this and it doesn't matter. And he could have had that argument and he probably would have won the biblical argument. Uh, but for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of loving someone else, he flexed. Where do you flex in order to serve, to be a part of our church? Maybe you, I know everybody in this room at some point in time flex in your music tastes, don't you? You flex just, just for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of love, for the advance of the gospel in other people's lives, gospel sacrifice. Look, if Timothy got circumcised, I wonder what excuse you're going to give me, okay? All right, let's move on. Theme number four. Theme number four. Finally, briefly, strengthened congregation. Strengthened congregation. This is the result of good leadership. Good leadership in the, apostle, uh, the part of the apostles and Paul himself. That's in verses four and five. They, uh, the apostles had made this decision in Jerusalem, chapter 15. They shared the news, and verse five the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. The same thing actually happens back in chapter 15, verse 32. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. This is a passage about the good blessing of leadership. It leads to strength and health and happy congregations. This is why, men, I can encourage you elders, when we come to the church and we have four and a half hour meetings that go late into the night and we're struggling to work through these issues, the congregation benefits from that work the church benefits from from uh, being well led they grow and they flourish so we started talking today about the influence of a mother it's deeper and it starts sooner that you may than you may have realized this is probably true in a church isn't it too it's deeper and it's sooner than you might think so here's the paint sample in Acts 16, 1 through 5. Very small. Let's spread it everywhere. Let's color all of our ministries and all of our programs and all of our committees with, with these colors that are in these verses. It's part of the mission that Jesus gave us to represent him here and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we do thank you that we have been looking at this book that is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That makes us so very glad. What a privilege it is to look at this book. And we, we are grateful to you that you have given it to us even to point us in the right direction as a congregation. Lord, I thank you for men who are elders in our church who, who do take these passages and, and things very seriously and think carefully about um, what's next for our church and who's next in leading. I, I thank you for uh, men and women here who enjoy ministry partnerships on committees and in Sunday school rooms and in, um, on Wednesday nights in, in Awana. Lord, I pray that you would continue to cultivate these things more and more in us so that we would grow uh, in our confidence in the Lord Jesus and our effectiveness as representatives of him in Lancaster County. 
Thank you for your good word. Now by your spirit, would you uh, seal it to our hearts so that we would obey it joyfully and gladly. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.